Today, I was hoping to be able to cover two attributes, um, but I don't think we're going to have time. I wanted to cover God's justice and his love, um, because I feel like if you talk about one without the other, it's very easy to become out of balance. So I wanted to cover them both today, but I don't think it's going to happen. Um, so we'll just have to pick up next week. So for today, we'll be covering the justice of God. And I don't have my, um, my clicker up here, Malachi, so you'll have to advance that. Uh, the justice of God, which uh, Wayne Grudem says in his systematic theology, God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. So the justice of God basically just means that God always does what's right. <laughs> that all of God's actions that he takes uh, are good and are righteous. Now there's two ways to understand that. Um, one is known as the realist view. The realist view of God's justice says basically that God chooses the right um, because it is right to do. So in other words, God, you know, whenever there's, well, I don't know how to phrase that, but basically that what God does is right um, because God chooses to do right. The nominalist view says that God's choice of an action makes it right. Um, and Wayne Grudem there in his definition is sort of trying to harmonize both. Because you see at the beginning he says he always acts in accordance with what is right, and then at the end he is himself the final standard of what is right. Um, and I'll, I want to get some feedback on this because I'm curious to know your thoughts. But uh, between those two views, which one seems to make the most sense to you? So either God just chooses what's right, or basically by virtue of God doing whatever he does, that makes it right. Which one of those two do you think works best? Go ahead. Okay. Catherine, I know you have thoughts. Right. Okay. Right. Right. Okay, and that, I think that's pretty similar to what you were saying, Malachi. Um, that is my understanding, is that essentially it would be the realist view, that God always does what is right. However, then the question comes, define right. And you can't define right and wrong uh, outside of God. <laughs> like as though, well, you know, here are just, who decides? You know, who, who decides what's right and wrong? Well, God does. Um, so... My understanding of this is that basically, yes, God has determined uh, what is right, what is wrong, and he always chooses the right. So I guess there's a little bit of both there, but it, I lean heavier toward the first part. Um, because I think the idea that, you know, God can just kind of do whatever he wants and it's right because he's God, you know, I, I don't know if that works. Because if that were true, what does it really mean that God is just? Right, it's sort of a nonsensical term at that point. Um, so anyways, any other questions on that? I just wanted to have a little discussion before we move on.
Right. I guess what I'm what I'm pushing at is, um, right. I know. If God did the opposite of what He chose to do, it would be wrong. It, it wouldn't be right just because He chose to do that instead. <laughs> like there is actually a right and a wrong, um, and He chooses the right. So the justice of God then means that God's actions are always appropriate. Uh, he responds rightly. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. Um, I think this is the best verse in the Bible on this subject. Uh, the rock, his work, is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and right is he. So that's like five different ways of saying God is just. Uh, his works are perfect. All his ways are just. He's a faithful God with no iniquity. He is just and upright. All of that is just saying God is righteous. He always does what is right. Psalm 11, verse 7, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. So not only is God righteous, not only is everything that God does righteous, but God loves righteous deeds. He does right because it is his delight to do right. When the rich young ruler asked Jesus what good thing he should do in order to, to gain eternal life, uh, Jesus responded in Matthew 19, 17, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. So only God is good. He alone uh, is perfectly just and righteous. And his commandments, therefore, should be followed. Because of the fact that he is righteous, because of the fact that he is just, what he says should be obeyed. We should submit to what God says right and wrong is because he is the only one who perfectly lives out uh, true righteousness. The author of Hebrews said of Jesus, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So uh, you see there that justice has two sides to it, uh, loving righteousness and hating wickedness. Both of those are crucial elements of true justice. It's not, it's not just um, to love righteousness and to be neutral about sin. You have to be, you know, uh, love righteousness and hate wickedness are both uh, aspects of God's justice. So to be just, you have to hate sin and love what is good. God's justice means that he always acts in accordance with righteousness. When God acts, he always does what is right. Uh, R.C. Sproul said in his book, uh, Injustice is Evil, an act of injustice violates the principles of righteousness. If God were to do something unfair, he would be acting unjustly. Abraham knew the, the impossibility of that when he said to God, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? You remember that's the context when uh, God is basically debating with Abraham whether or not to destroy uh, Sodom. And Abraham says, well, are you just going to wipe out all the righteous people along with the wicked? And, and of course, the answer is no. Um, in fact, miraculously, the angel basically grabs Lot and his family and transports them out of town right before the destruction because they're righteous. Um, God was not about to just wipe them out along with the rest of, the, uh, of Sodom. Uh, continuing on there, though, because God is a just judge, all his judgments are according to righteousness, so that he never acts in an unjust way. He never commits an injustice. Now, this leads to a question, and again, I do, I do want to uh, hear your thoughts on this. If God is perfectly good, and he is totally powerful, as we saw last week, uh, how do we explain the existence of evil? Uh, how, how do you answer that question? What does, in other words, what does the existence of evil mean for God's justice? Um, can he eliminate evil? 
And if so, why doesn't he? If he's truly just. Somebody want to take a stab at that? Malachi. Yeah. Um, do you believe evil will ultimately be destroyed? Uh, maybe a better way to say it is eliminated. Like there will be a time when there will be no evil. Okay. So then the question is, why, why does he allow evil for a period of time if he's going to wipe it out later? <clears throat> Okay. Um, well, I, I totally agree that none of us has, nobody has the perfect answer to this question, right? No matter what answer you give, it's not going to satisfy everything. Um, but at the end of the day, I do think we have to say, yes, God allows evil to exist. Um, and he does so for some good purposes. Uh, I think of certain things that would not exist had it not been for evil. For instance, we would know nothing of God's mercy. Um, if it wasn't for evil, we don't really, we wouldn't understand God's love were it not for the cross. Like so much of God's character has been revealed um, in the way that he has responded to the fall of man. But I think for some good reasons, God wanted evil to exist. One of my kind of, if you want a proof text for that, it would just be Genesis, the first few chapters, where God creates human beings, puts them in the garden and then puts the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden, right? And he knows what's coming. He knows what they're going to do. Um, why did he create the tree? Why did he put it there in the middle of the garden? It's sort of like, you know, you know those uh, scenarios where, I don't know, this is like a cartoon thing where they'll have a big red button and don't touch the big red button and everything will blow up. And you, you think, well, why did you make the big red button? Um, it's like you, you wanted this plot to happen. Uh, that's kind of how I think of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Like God created it, put it right in the middle of the garden. 
Um, if he wanted to eliminate any chance of evil coming into the world, just don't make the tree <laughs> or, or don't put it there. You know, put, put it somewhere on the other side of the world where, where they're, you know, they won't ever touch it. Um, so for some good reason, God allowed the possibility of evil. Uh, he could have uprooted the tree. He could have buried it in the earth, or he could have just not created it to begin with. But the possibility for evil was a part of his perfect creation. That's the other side of this. Um, God created everything, said it's all very good. And that includes the possibility of evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was in the garden when God said everything is very good. So he created it that way. It wasn't a, a, some sort of a mistake. Um, as the open theists would say that, you know, God just didn't, he didn't know what we were going to do. Well, no, he definitely knew what we were going to do. And he put it there purposefully. Um, so while that certainly does not answer all of the questions uh, about why God allows evil, I understand that it, it's not a satisfactory answer. However, we have to trust that he has his reasons um, and ultimately, he doesn't owe us an explanation for them. Uh, we'll get to that a little bit later, but just to say now, um, God's actions being just is not dependent upon our understanding how they are just. Uh, a lot of things that God does, we don't get how it's right, but it's still right. Uh, it really doesn't matter you know, whether or not we understand those things. But I do want to address... Some of the events in the Old Testament that um, we might be prone to think of as problems for God's justice, there are certain stories in the Bible where Christians really tend to cringe uh, at the wrath of God. For example, uh, God's commanding Israel to kill the Canaanites and take their land. You think, well, these are just uh, people living in Canaan, and God says, I want the land, so you, you kill all of those people? That doesn't seem right. Uh, God commands Saul to kill the Amalekites. Uh, the story in um, 2 Samuel, I believe, where Uzzah, uh, they, they got the, the cart with uh, the Ark of the Covenant on it, Uzzah touches it, and God just strikes him dead instantly. Uh, many examples like that in the Old Testament where God's actions seem to be just over the top. Um, and, and we wonder, uh, is God still just in doing these things that seem wrong to us? First, before we address those Romans 2, verse 5. Um, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So the, the wrath of God against sin is an expression of God's righteousness. Um, it, it's not a fit of anger where God just loses control. Rather, when God displays wrath, it is because it is right for him to do so. And uh, I read this this week. I think I saw it on Twitter, and I have no idea who said it, um, but I thought it was a good quote. To minimize God's wrath is to marginalize his holiness. Uh, in other words, if we sort of think, well, basically, God's uh, wrath against sin is a feature of his righteousness, not a bug. <laughs> it's part of what it means to be just and righteous. Uh, is to be angry at sin, like we saw earlier, just as much as it is to love righteousness. And so the wrath of God against sin is, is not a problem uh, for the righteousness of God. Uh, really, the question comes down to why does he choose to uh, display that wrath on some occasions and not others? It seems uh, unequal. You know, Uzzah died when he touched the cart, but David was the one who ordered them to move it on a cart. Now, why didn't God kill David? You know, there's questions like that that, that uh, we may not get all of the answers for. But 
Uh, God judging sin is not wrong. Um, before, if you have questions about those instances, I'm going to get a, a little bit of this here, but um, R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, is the best book that I know of that addresses these head-on. Um, and he goes into much detail about each one of those individual stories. Uh, and I, I think it's the best answers to some of those difficult questions that I've come across. So I'm going to give you some of Sproul's arguments here, um, but if you want to go deeper, I would recommend you get that book. There are a few copies still on the back table. Uh, here's uh, a few of his arguments. First, he says, first, there is a historical precedent that is far more severe than the conquest of Canaan, uh, the flood. In the flood, God destroyed the entire population of the world, except for Noah and his family. The flood was a conquest of Canaan on a grand scale. Basically, what he's saying there is people get all uptight when God kills the Canaanites and gives their land to Israel. Uh, if you're going to be upset about something, the flood was a much bigger deal. You know, God wiped out everyone on the globe. Um, and yet, for whatever reason, that doesn't trigger too many problems for us normally. We almost think like, oh, the flood was fine, but why are you killing the Canaanites? Um, and he's just pointing out, like, the flood was a way bigger, you know, a way broader judgment of God. Uh, continuing on, more important is the failure to understand the nature of sin. The assumption of the commentators is that God wiped out innocent people in Canaan. Of the multitudes of women and children living in Canaan, none was innocent. Now, this is a very important point. Uh, no innocent Canaanite was killed because none of the Canaanites were innocent. Uh, in fact, if we read the other passages in the Old Testament, which I didn't write down here, uh, God explicitly talks about their idolatry, their wickedness. They, these were uh, not just innocent people. These were very sinful uh, Canaanites that God judged. Same with the Malachites. Continuing on, uh, the soul who sins is the one who will die, Ezekiel 18.4. In, cre in creation, all sin is deemed worthy of death. Every sin is a capital offense. The Old Testament list of capital crimes represents a massive reduction of the original list. It is an astonishing measure of grace. So what he's saying there is... Uh, Part of the reason we have a hard time with this is we forget the fact that all of us deserve death. Um, when you read Genesis, uh, God tells Adam, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And then he eats of the tree and doesn't die. <laughs> Has that ever struck you as odd before when you read that? You're like expecting he's going to drop dead, um, but God doesn't judge him right away. So we need to keep in mind with all of this that the moment you and I sin, we deserve God's judgment right then. And the fact that God occasionally uh, works out that judgment in time, like striking us a dead for his sin immediately, uh, we, we shouldn't be astonished that he did that. We should be astonished that he doesn't do it to all of us. Okay, in other words, like he said there, uh, the list of capital offenses, all of us are capital offenders. All of us should be on death row. Um, and God has drastically reduced that. He's been gracious to the vast majority of us who will live a full life that we don't deserve. Okay, and so it, it is just of God to punish sin. Uh, let's see here. Um, continuing on, uh, R.C. Spool has an illustration. I didn't write all of this out. He has an illustration there of a teacher. Uh, I think he actually uses from his own personal experience. He, he taught as a professor at a university for a long time. and. 
he said uh, he would tell his students on the first day of class, uh, I don't accept any late assignments. Like you have these assignments, you have to turn them in on the due date, otherwise they will not be accepted. You know, I have a zero, zero tolerance for late work. Uh, and then the first assignment comes around in the semester and 10 people didn't turn it in on time. And they come to him and, oh, please, would you give us a little bit more time? This and this happened, whatever, give your excuses. And, uh, and so he says, okay, that's fine. I'll accept it just this once. Make sure you're, you know, your next assignment is on time. Um, and then the next assignment comes and 20 people uh, turn it in late. And, and they're, oh, would you please forgive us and give us more time? And he says, okay, fine, I'll give you mercy again. Uh, next assignment, make sure it's on time. The next time, you know, 30 people are late. Uh, and then that time he says, that's it, I'm accepting no late work. Okay, how ridiculous would it be for one of those 30 students to say, that's not fair? Well, of course it's fair. <laughs> he told you the first day of class, I don't accept late homework. Uh, the fact that he accepted it the first two times uh, doesn't make it wrong for him not to accept it. Does that make sense? So what happens is we become so accustomed to God acting mercifully that we take it for granted and assume that we deserve that. And so the rare occasions when God acts um, you know, with immediate justice, we become outraged. Like, he didn't deserve to die. Well, yes, he did. He deserved to die the minute he sinned uh, as a young child. Like, God has been gracious to us for so long, um, and yet we get so outraged as soon as his displays of justice are seen. We cringe at God's displays of justice because we've taken for granted his normal course of grace. Again, R.C. Sproul says, He is indeed long-suffering, patient, and slow to anger. In fact, he is so slow to anger that when his anger does erupt, we are shocked and offended by it. We forget rather quickly that God's patience is designed to lead us to repentance, to give us time to be redeemed. Instead of taking advantage of this patience by coming humbly to him for forgiveness, we use this grace as an opportunity to become more bold in our sin. And we delude ourselves into thinking that either God doesn't care about it or that he is powerless to punish us. The supreme folly is that we think we will get away with our revolt. In other words, back to the illustration of the teacher. Uh, when the teacher gives the student grace the first time, the right thing for the student to do is say, I'm going to make sure that uh, my next assignment is turned in on time. But what we have a more natural tendency to do is to say, well, he was gracious in the past. I'm sure he'll let it go again. And so we just take advantage of the patience of God over and over and over again. And so when he finally says that's it and his justice uh, erupts, you know, his wrath is seen in, in some sort of punishment, whether it's death or something else, uh, we become outraged. I, I didn't deserve this. In other words, God's, God's grace in the past is not like a free pass for us to sin in the future and just not expect any sort of judgment. That's basically the main point there. None of us deserve anything but wrath from God. And when we become offended at God's wrath over sin, it simply reveals that we don't really think we deserve it. We have become so deluded to think that we honestly just deserve God's grace. There was only one person in all of human history who can claim to have been mistreated by God, and that's Jesus. R.C. Sproul says, The most violent expression of God's wrath and justice is seen in the cross. 
If ever a person had room to complain of injustice, it was Jesus. He was the only innocent man ever to be punished by God. If we stagger at the wrath of God, let us stagger at the cross. Here is where our astonishment should be focused. If we have cause for moral outrage, let it be directed at Golgotha. The cross was at once the most horrible and the most beautiful example of God's wrath. It was the most just and the most gracious act in history. We'll get to that point a little bit later. Uh, but essentially, the, the, the argument throughout much of the book there is, we are all sinners. We deserve God's wrath the moment we are born. And the fact that God's been gracious to us throughout the span of our life should not be a license for us to continue to sin. Um, we should be astonished every morning when we wake up and are still alive at the mercy of God. Luke 13.1, Jesus um, addresses this question. Luke 13.1, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So uh, some of the Israelites were sacrificing Pilate, uh, apparently sent soldiers in, killed them, um, and their blood you know, was mingled with the sacrifices. It was an, an abomination, in other words, to Israel. Terrible tragedy. Um, verse 2, he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Another example, verse 4, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So this tower in Siloam falls, kills 18 people, and they're wondering, uh, was this God's judgment? Were they just such wicked sinners, uh, way worse than us, and that's why God allowed them to die? Uh, we tend to think of that sometimes. When bad things happen, we just assume... Um, you know, God did this to them because they were, you know, terrible sinners. It's some sort of a judgment uh, against them in particular. Uh, Sproul says, Jesus rebuked the people for putting their amazement in the wrong place. He said, unless you repent, you too will all perish. In effect, what Jesus was saying was this. You people are asking the wrong question. You should be asking, why didn't that tower fall on my head? That's a very different way of approaching these moral dilemmas. Uh, not, well, why is, how is God just to allow 18 people to die in this accident? A better question is, how is God just to allow all of us to continue living in our sin? And so he's just turning the question right around. In other words, you know, not why do bad things happen to good people. Nobody's good. Why does anything good happen to us bad people? That's the right question to be asking. At the end of the day, we have to say that God has every right to do what he will and that everything that God does is just. And again, I say God's actions being just are not dependent on your ability to see how his actions are just. Uh, Job 40 verse 2 says, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Uh, Job is a really good book along these lines where he feels like he's being mistreated by God, and he wants to you know, bring his case and uh, complain to God for the way he's being treated. And then when God shows up, he has nothing to say. Uh, he, has, he has no response for God, because ultimately God is just, he is right, and he has the right to do as he does. The only righteous person who did not deserve God's wrath, of course, was Jesus. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Isaiah 53, 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. This is a prophecy of Christ. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The righteousness of Christ matters because it is by his righteousness that we are saved. Jesus' death on the cross bore our iniquities, but that would just leave us in a state of neutrality before God. He took away our sins, but we don't have the righteousness. And so uh, the fact that Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life um, is how we are able to be accepted before God. This is the doctrine of imputation, um, that, that at conversion, not only does God take your sin and put them on Christ on the cross and punish them there, but he also gives you Jesus' righteousness. It's, it's put on your account as though you lived the perfect life of Christ. And so we receive the righteousness of Christ uh, imputed to us. And then as believers, we are called to emulate Righteousness. Micah 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And then Zechariah 8, 17. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath. Oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. So a part of what it means to follow Jesus and to emulate the righteousness of God is first to love righteousness, and secondly, to hate sin to hate iniquity, and to love what is good. Final question uh, I think that we're going to get to today. How can a good God forgive sinners? And this is really the logical conclusion of what we've been talking about, Um, trying to reorient ourselves to not think, uh, you know, why does God's wrath sometimes judge sinners? That should be the norm. (laughs) We should expect that. Again, on Genesis 3, we should be shocked when Adam doesn't fall dead after eating the fruit. That should startle us because, because that is the appropriate, what, what would seem to be the appropriate action for God. Uh, he said, if you eat this, you will surely die. He just ate it. God should have just zapped him right there. And so we should wonder, why, does God, uh, why is God gracious towards sin? And how does that work with justice? Uh, how can a just God be gracious toward wickedness? Uh, Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Um, So you see two parts of God's character there. He is loving, he is merciful, he abounds in steadfast love, but he will by no means clear the guilty, meaning God will never allow sin to go unpunished. Never. God will never allow a sin to take place that is not ultimately paid for. And so that leads to the obvious question, how are we forgiven? How is it that we can possibly experience mercy from God? And one way to think of this is, as a judge, we would consider a judge to be a very bad judge if they declared somebody innocent who was clearly guilty. Uh, somebody who committed a crime, and the judge just says, that's fine, you can go ahead and, and you know, go free with, with no, no charges. Uh, that would be a bad judge. And so how do we reconcile the justice of God with the mercy and forgiveness of God? 
Romans 3, starting verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So all of that is saying Jesus' death on the cross covers our sin. The word propitiation means basically satisfaction. Um, that Christ's death on the cross satisfied the wrath of God against us. Uh, continuing on, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so why did Jesus die on the cross? Ultimately, it was to uphold God's righteousness. Because if God said, okay, all of you sinners, go, go ahead and come to heaven. It's okay. You're all forgiven. If that happened without the cross, God would not be just. Because you would have all the sins of all of humanity never being paid for. All those crimes just going unpunished. The justice of God is seen in the fact that he punished Christ for all of our sins. And so all of, all of the wrath that we had incurred, all of our crimes, in other words, have been paid for. And they were paid for on the cross of Christ. And so Jesus' death on the cross, yes, it's the greatest display of God's love in history. That's true. But it's also the greatest display of God's wrath in history. It's the greatest display of the justice and righteousness of God. Because he can't just let sin go unpunished. And yet, he has this instinct to want to be merciful and to forgive us. And so how do you do this? Well, the sin has to be paid for. And that's why he comes and pays for it himself. And that's, that's some of the beauty and mystery of the cross. All right, I think that's as far as we're going to go. We do have a few minutes for any questions. Go ahead. No? You really look like you have a question. You're not sure how to ask it, or are you just... No? Okay. What's that? <clears throat> oh, yes, Sproul. Yep. Yeah, it's strange to me, uh, the things that upset us and then the things that don't. So I've thought about this before, like a lot of us have a natural, um, what's the word? We don't like hell. We don't like the idea uh, that God would punish consciously people forever in hell. 
That's very difficult for us. We have no problem with God doing it to Satan or God doing it to the demons. Um, you know, Satan was kicked out of heaven for a thought, right? He didn't do anything. He hadn't acted on it yet. He had a thought in his heart. I want to be like God. He didn't even say, I want to be better than God. He said, I want to be like him. I want to be in his position. Uh, and he was kicked out of heaven and condemned to hell forever. And most of us have never had a problem with that. <laughs> Where it's like, oh, that's fine. God's just. He can do that. Yes, go kill Satan. Uh, but then when it comes to humans, we're like, oh, we're way better than that. Uh, we don't, in other words, we don't see our own sin as humans the way that we see the sin of um, Satan, for instance. Go ahead. We only have like a minute here, but. Okay. Yeah, the two texts on that, uh, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel, I think, 38, um, where it says, yeah, where it says um, basically that he had a, I, I don't know, I remember the exact phrasing, but it was a thought in his heart, I want to be like the Most High, I'll ascend to the, the sides of the north, things like that. Now, you know, would he have acted on it and started a revolt? Probably. Maybe that was the seed of that, you know, future action that he would take. Um, but either way, it's just interesting how, we tend to, like you said, in the flood, right? We see God destroying all the sinners in the flood, and we think, oh, well, they were wicked. Of course God wiped them out. Well, we're wicked. <laughs> it's not like a, a different... Um, I understand there was, you know, demonic activity and things taking place with the flood narrative, but it's just funny how certain instances of sin uh, were fine with God judging, and then other instances were not. So go ahead. You had a question? Um, that comes from a text in Revelation, I believe, where uh, something, it says something like the dragon with his tail took down a third of the stars of heaven or something. That may be referring to, it's certainly not clear. It may be referring to, to that. And I think that makes sense, that that's where the demons would come from, that they're fallen angels. So I do agree with that. Um, but it seems that that took place after or as a result of his being banished from heaven. In other words, the, you know, the, the first sin was the pride of his heart. God punishes Satan, and then basically that starts the rebellion, where Satan tries to you know, take angels with him and then corrupt humanity. Um, that kind of starts this whole cosmic war that he takes against God. Um, but the initial sin that he was uh, banished for was simply a, a thought of pride, of exalti you know, exalting himself instead of God.